Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the download. We've got a great show for you. Phil, who's on today? Yeah, well, Karen, we got uh, Sarah Gasarek. Uh, Sarah, you know, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, she's a good friend of mine that I've been able to get to know over the years. And and Sarah has experience, uh, has all kinds of um, experience in this space. Since the 90s, she's been on Capitol Hill um, just learning from different people who are doing this work. She was able to work in the White House. She now runs um, Faith to Action Initiative. She's the executive director of Faith to Action Initiative, and she is using all of that, using all of her experience to advocate um, and teach others how to advocate and teach others how to do this work um, for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. So you're going to, I know you're going to learn a lot from Sarah about the different resources that Faith to Action has and how you can take those resources and hopefully use them to do better work and really understand how you can love the orphan and the vulnerable in your midst, uh, different parts of the world. So if you're not familiar with Faith to Action, go check them out at faiththaaction.org. The other thing, you can come to CAFO next week in Dallas and you can learn from Sarah and so many others. Um, I actually met Sarah at a CAFO summit a few years ago. And CAFO, for those of you who don't know, out there, it's C-A-F-O, and it's C-A-F-O.org. You can learn all kinds of information about that. But as with, as always, with this information you learn from Sarah, from this interview, from the things you might uh, engage with at Faith to Action, if you have any comments, any questions about it, you know, uh, share them with us at uh, thinkorphan.com, um, at, the, at the blog for the, for the show notes for this. You can do that through an, through an email to us. Uh, we also love for you to rate and review this podcast. Uh, do that at iTunes, and that, that helps us get it out to so many more people. And finally, as we've talked about in the past, if you want to help us financially for this for this podcast to help fuel it, uh, you can do that at ProvidenceWorld.com, and there's a giving tab that you can share uh, your resources with us as well. So with all of that, take what you're going to learn from uh, Sarah, take some notes, and uh, we hope that you use it in awesome ways. So here it goes with Sarah Gacera. Hey, Sarah, it's so great to finally get you onto the Think Orphan podcast. Hey, Phil. It's nice to be joining you. So as we've been talking before recording, it's, it's uh, raining on both ends of this interview mm-hmm. right now, which doesn't happen very often since I'm in California. <laughs> um, but uh, if, if you out there hear that, just, you know, kind of pull up a cup of coffee and with a cup of coffee and listen to this interview with the nice rain sound in the background. If you don't hear it, well, then you're going to be a normal interview and we'll have a, a great conversation with Sarah. So Sarah, you know, You've been working the last few years with Faith to Action Initiative, which is doing amazing work uh, around the world. Thank we're going to get we're going to get to the great work of Faith to Action here in a minute. But uh, I want you to um, just really introduce yourself to our audience, many many of whom have never met you. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over mm-hmm. the last few years and really enjoyed that. And I'm definitely the better for it. Um, but can you share your story uh, of your just real extensive experiments advocating for orphaned and vulnerable children, and, and really how you got to be where you are today? Sure, sure. Happy to share that. Uh, I guess you could say that my advocacy story, or I guess my, I began working in these issues uh, in the first years of my life. Uh, my mom and my dad, Joyce and Rollin Gazerick, they picked me up from a children's home. I was living in Omaha. That was many years ago when the United States still had 
children's homes for small kids. Uh, I became a daughter and a sister at that time through adoption. And from a really young age, I was so proud to tell the world how my family found me. And I guess that's where my advocacy began. Uh, Professionally, I've had the privilege of working on child welfare and child protection issues, both in the United States and around the globe now for about 20 years. Uh, And I've had the privilege to work for three national leaders who care deeply for orphans and vulnerable children here and abroad. So I'd love to tell you a little bit about how they influenced uh, the work that I'm doing and also how I got the opportunities then to work uh, in this incredible field. So it started when I served as a policy advisor for U.S. Senator Charles Grassley. He represents my home state of Iowa. And uh, when I worked for him, in whatever policy uh, I, I did for him, he always inspired me to be persistent and creative in making policy to ensure positive outcomes particularly in this area for children and families. And uh, to do so, he demanded that I meet with the people the policy would impact. Uh, He didn't want me to just legislate. He didn't want to just legislate on theory and feelings alone. Hmm. So I went out and I met with judges and caseworkers and birth families and foster families and youth and, you know, a whole lot of other folks who are working in this field. Uh, And that helped, one, it helped uh, shape the policies that we worked on But then it really helped me integrate and understand more um, how all this uh, could work or should work. Uh, So, by the way, Senator Grassley, he's still one of the top child welfare reform leaders on Capitol Hill today. Uh, And then I went to go work for Dave Thomas. Uh, Some of us remember him as the Wendy's guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So he founded the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. They're located in Columbus, Ohio, and they work Uh, All their work and all of their uh, programs uh, focus on helping find loving families for every child who's waiting in U.S. foster care. Uh, Dave would ask everyone he came in contact. It didn't matter if it was business executives, pastors, governors, policy staffers like me. That's how I met him. Uh, What can you do for kids who need families? So while I was working for him, I began to understand that we can use whatever platform God gives us to advocate for children to have families. Uh, And then after working for him, I had the honor to work for President George W. Bush, and that was in the White House, and I was advising on his adoption and child welfare policy. And he was leading meaningful reforms to support family reunification, kinship care, adoption, and uh, also supports for older youth who were leaving foster care. President Bush taught me about maintaining a steadfast commitment. Um, He was really steadfastly committed to this cause and serving something greater than yourself. And he truly believed that the family is the foundation of society. And, uh, you know, I I was really inspired by President Bush to have high expectations, you know, uh, to look at the strengths of the communities. And we had to do that in order to create effective and meaningful policy and programs that would support children and families. Um, you know, this would be in that way we would be helping instead of hurting the very people we were called to serve. Right. Uh, now, during that time, though, God started shifting my attention towards a more global view of orphans and vulnerable children. At that time, uh, my primary focus was on our U.S. domestic foster care. Uh, and and also at that time, and for the first time, the United States stopped international adoptions from a country. Uh, We had halted adoptions from Cambodia because uh, there were serious ethical concerns related to what was happening over there. There They were concerned about money laundering and trafficking in children. And and sadly, uh, people did go to jail because of these crimes. Uh, But it was a heartbreaking time because so many families had hoped to adopt from the country 
and many had already been matched with a child in Cambodia. And uh, it was also a pivotal time for me, too, because during that time, there was a lot of debate about the merits of closing down adoptions. And some of the arguments to keep adoption included, well, children will do better here than in huts in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? I had to think about that. Because it was really troubling to me to think that we didn't recognize that the most fundamental basic need a child had was to be loved in a family. Mm -hmm. And that was more important than the size and location of their home. Mm -hmm. And I also heard of my colleagues say, well, any mother who would abandon their baby doesn't deserve to have them back. Mm -hmm. And and then I was like, wow, I I have to think about that, too. You know, that's when I learned about struggling mothers who make the loving decisions to release their children to orphanages or for adoption because they think it would be, and they, they perceive it to be a better life for their child. And, you know, that made me look hard at my own prejudices and start shifting my thinking towards how could we support her so she didn't have to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I had other really exciting jobs in this sphere, but to suffice it to say, I guess that every job working on child welfare issues I've ever had over the last 20 plus years, I've learned children grow best in families, no doubt, no question. Yeah. And, you know, I really learned that it doesn't matter where the children are separated from their families or why they're separated. The best solution, or as I sometimes call it, the antidote to the crisis is the same. They need families to, to thrive. And that's that's what continues to drive me in the work I do, whether inside government or out. Yeah, and that's def- definitely something that uh, has been consistent in all of our conversation, consistent <laughs> in everything in, in our relationship and our friendship. Uh, you know, I, I've said to many, I've told many people about the first time we really connected uh, it, over coffee. I had asked you to look at the website for Providence, the organization that I work with, and 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 come to me with any questions you have. And you came back with, uh, you came to that meeting with three pages of questions <laughs> that we that we didn't finish. We never, we still haven't done that. We still need to do that. But but it was so it was so refreshing and so awesome to to see that you really do believe in what you're doing. You have such an amazing, uh, thoughtful approach to it that does come from this experience that you just talked about. And I know that -hmm. you have taken that from organization to organization, from different, different people that, that I believe truly believe God has placed you in different places because of your, your true, uh, you know, passion for making, uh, the, the best possible setting for, for children to be loved, to be brought up. And as you talked about it, in families. And so what does that look like? And I know that your work with faith to action is no exception to that. Um, can you tell us about, tell our audience and tell, tell all of us about the work that you're doing with faith to action? Yeah, happy to, uh, I've been with faith to action about five years now and it's, it's, it's just been an incredible experience, and I've met the most amazing people along the way who are also just equally dedicated to uh, making sure that children grow up in families. And the Faith to Action, and we serve the Faith and Action, <laughs> the Faith to Action Initiative. We serve as a resource for churches and organizations and individuals who are really wanting to respond to the needs of children all over all over the globe who've been separated from their families. Um, we're a coalition. Uh, We're a coalition of faith-based and global development organizations and institutions. And the focus of our work is we want to encourage action to help children that's informed by evidence-based best practice. And we want to to provide information that upholds the importance of family in the life of every child. And what was really interesting is we grew out of the groundswell of support from churches and faith-based organizations and so many others who who are responding to the HIV and AIDS crisis in Africa. And that crisis had left so many children orphaned and vulnerable. 
And at the time, the primary response by many of them was to build an orphanage or a children's home. And as an emergency response, it made sense. If a child was perceived to be alone, it seemed compassionate to take them in and provide for their basic needs. But as the medical advances were helping to prevent and treat HIV and AIDS, we were also seeing that the research about the limitations of or the limitations of residential care for healthy child development were also gaining attention. Um, that that research in neuroscience was showing us that children living in orphanages were at greater risk for negative impact on their social, emotional, and cognitive cognitive development. And you know, the research also showed that the severity of these effects increased with the size of the institution and the length of stay. And it also pointed out that this would also increase with younger children, especially those under the ages of three. But the good news was that the, the evidence was also showing that children can recover in families and they grow best in families, um, and that the family is the important source of love, attention, emotional support, moral, spiritual growth, and all of those good things in the life of the child. And the even better news, we know that scripture backs that up. Mm-hmm. And so based on all of this, uh, there's a growing movement among international policymakers, the development community, and also within the church that is recognizing that children grow best in families. And I've been so excited because in my five years with Faith to Action, just just this exponential reach. Um, and uh, I guess I, I just see God raising up child welfare leaders all over the world. And we're celebrating this movement, and we all we want to do is support it. We want to we want to be able to give positive, practical tools and resources that are backed by the best research and the experiences. Yeah. And we want to be able to help churches, organizations, and practitioners to invest in family care at the start of their ministries, or transition their models of care if they've been supporting residential care to help them transition to that family care. Um, you know, what's exciting is we don't have our own programs. We don't have a methodology. You know, we have practices. Um, or I guess we have uh, principles and standards that we like to share. And all we want to do is to serve those who are doing the work out there with uh, information that's helpful. Um, and uh, all of this is so that, uh, you know, we want to encourage these long-term partnerships based on uh, local empowerment and community ownership and that are in the best interest of children so that they can remain in their families they can reunite with their families if they've been separated, or they can regain a new family um, if needed. One thing that you that keeps coming up, that keeps coming up in those last two answers, is really just the, the excellence, the idea of excellence, the idea of, mm-hmm. of evidence-based uh, best practices. And you know, so the, so folks out there that you, you're wondering if that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, and it's just kind of the. We, the one thing we suffer from in this work often is we have what's called the curse of knowledge where we we know things and we say things and we use jargon sometimes that other people don't understand. So evidence-based, you know, best practices, really that's, in, in layman's terms, it's it's the best way we can do things that's based on the research and years of studies that are that are out cool. there. And, and it's just something that we often use these big words that don't mean, you know, they're, they're very simple concepts, really. And so it's a lot of people have been studying these things for a long time and coming up with with the best practices, the best way to do things based on the research. Now, the things that we realize that in, in every different situation, every different cultural context in the world, you know, it might look different. It might look different, but but you have you at, at Faith to Action have created resources that people can use the principles as you talked about those principles mm-hmm. to hopefully bring it into their cultural context. It's what we try to do with In Pursuit of Orphan X. We try to create a framework, not a model, not a how-to, and that's really what I see Faith to Action doing as well. And so. 
can you just share some of the resources that you have created uh, Faith to Action? I know some of them were created before your time with Faith to Action, but I know that you've, you're continually creating resources and just the quality of them is, it never ceases to amaze me, the, the quality of the materials that you're able to make. But can you just share the resources and really how you're hoping that these resources will be able to be used around the world? Sure. Happy to. Um, we have a range of resources because, you know, everybody's at different places as they're entering into this or um, or some people have been doing this ministry for a long, long time uh, and others are just starting out. And so because our audience is pretty diverse and at different stages and doing different types of of uh, work, um, we, we try to be creative, but we want the, our resources to be practical and we want yeah. them to be uh, accessible and we really, as we write them, we, you know, we realized a long time ago, a lot of the resources that are out there really weren't written for a faith-based audience. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create materials that yeah, went from the introductory to a little bit more complex that uh, were written pr- especially for our, um, a faith-based audience. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I would say um, we, we've, we've written a lot of stories, you know, short stories that illustrate uh, how other our, our brothers and sisters all around the uh, world are serving children and families. Um, they're inspirational stories. And like you do with your podcast, we spend a lot of time getting to know the people and the organizations we write about. Right. And, uh, you know, over the last few years, we've created a, a, our collection covers a wide range of family care topics and different interventions and different locations. And uh, I do want to say, if any of your listeners have a story to share that helps illustrate best practice in action, uh, please email us at, at info at faithtoaction.org. Um, we would love to learn about the great work that others are doing. And that's what makes it exciting for us. Uh, we want to share everybody else's stories. We want mm-hmm. others to be encouraged by like-minded folks or people who are in their same regions or context because we know it's different. The principles are timeless, right. but, the, but the practice might be slightly different based on where you're located and the kids and families that you're serving. Uh, I'd also just encourage folks, um, secondly, to check out our introductory resources. I'll tell you about a couple of them. Uh, The first one we have is a Journeys of Faith. It's called the Journeys of Faith, Caring for Orphans and Vulnerable Children Small Group Study Series. And it's a six-part series, and it helps engage participants. Um, It provides discussions, readings, videos, group activities, and even prayer uh, that you can use. And we have a, it has a facilitator's guide. And we're getting a lot of positive feedback from those who have used it. Uh, primarily those uh, folks are using it to lead small groups in their church or students are leading small group studies on their campuses. And that's been, a, that's been really fun and exciting. For, and it's a great introductory conversation around these issues. Um, the other in, more introductory resource we have is our Continuum of Care for Orphans and Vulnerable Children. So this is a, a, a really quick read, quick study over what are the different ranges? What do we mean by family-based care? What, what's on that continuum of care? It includes prevention, uh, uh, how to prevent separation from, uh, uh, from families, reunification when separation has happened, relative care, some call it kinship care, uh, foster care, adoption. And, and there really is, we know that on the continuum of care, there is a role, you know, some children may need short-term uh, group home care uh, based on their unique needs, but it always temporary um, with the concurrent planning, the goal of returning to family. So we cover that, uh, what that looks like. Um, what we really excited too is we have an interactive web page. So you can click on a, 
a graphic that illustrates the continuum of care. And then you can dig a little bit deeper. You can find links to, links to other helpful resources, videos, podcasts, and inspirational examples. So when we create all of this, we try to do it in a way that some people learn through podcasts, like <laughs> like yours. Mm-hmm. Um, others learn through, prefer videos. Some want to do deep reading. Um, others want to read inspirational stories. So we try to provide a a broad range of information, but not too much because we don't want you just to go into some website that's just, you know, has thousands of resources. Right. And you don't even know where to begin. We want to make it, as I said earlier, accessible. Um, the other thing we've developed, and this is probably the resources you're more familiar with, uh, are, are guidance and tools for practitioners, program leaders, donors, and other advocates. Um, I, I, I think our most requested publication is our summary of research to help guide faith-based action. And that also is a great, it's beyond a primer, but it's, it's, it's very easy to read and get through. Um, it, it highlights you know, key facts about who are the children that we consider orphans and vulnerable children. How'd they, uh, how, how did they end up in, a, in a, an orphanage or an institution? Um, what are some, what's that compelling evidence that I talked about earlier, demonstrating the importance of family care? Um, where it, it highlights some of the research on the limitations of orphanage and residential care. And then it also covers family-based care strategies. But the thing I like about this and uh, is it's a great read for those who want to learn more, but it's also a great uh, document, if I can but say so, uh, to mm-hmm. provide to others, to bring to others along in the conversation. Uh, we've had testimonies from people who have used it to help educate their board as they were, you know, they, they had the... The executive director caught the vision to transition their children's home and actually was in Honduras, uh, where you work, um, Mm -hmm. transition that children's home into family care. And it was really difficult. It was an emotional decision for some. And and, you know, he wanted to make the case of why um, instead of telling them to stop what they're doing, it was how can we shift what we're doing? And he was able to use that the information and that guidance to help uh, encourage their board to consider and they are now transitioning um, their children's home um, into family care for those kids and uh, we also have it in French and Spanish too for those who are looking for resources in other languages um, the over the last few years we've also been contacted for guidance on how to navigate the complex process of transitioning to family care because people want to know how do I do this well but I also want to protect the children in my care. Yeah. Uh, so we developed the Transitioning to Family Care Guidance Manual and Toolkit. So we have a guidance manual that you can read, but we also have a toolkit. If you just really want to explore, uh, you know, we, we, we spent time reviewing hundreds and hundreds of resources out there. And uh, we were able to narrow it down to about 200 resources, which sounds like a lot, but um, it was 200 resources within this toolkit uh, so that you could learn more or dig a little bit deeper into the whether it's child-centered case management or um, how do you prepare for the transition or what are the key steps we have to take. And so depending on where you are um, in this transition, uh, you can you can learn more. And we wanted to make it easier for you to find those helpful resources mm-hmm. out there because I know there are thousands mm-hmm. of uh, materials out there just you know, vying for our attention. And, and, and so many of them are really great, but we wanted to find those that would best suit 
uh, the needs of the folks who were in the middle of or starting transition. Um, and the cool thing was it was informed by a group of faith-based organizations who were transitioning to family care. Yeah. So they helped us ensure that whatever we wrote and whatever we publish, it's going to be practical and it's going to be helpful right. because it's very easy. I don't run a program. I've never had to uh, administer a program so I can write in theory. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier about Senator Grassley, he said, have you met with those people um, to know how is this going to, is this practical? Is right. it going to make sense? Is it going to work? Uh, do they want this? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, all those things. And so we met with those people who were uh, transitioning and um, and they helped to inform it. So we hope hope it's, it's useful. Um, and then I guess our last resource that we're really excited about, we're going to be releasing this, hopefully, Lord willing, in April. Uh, it's how short-term mission trips can better support orphans and vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, this resource, we're, we're creating it for anybody who's interested in supporting care for orphans and vulnerable children through sending or joining short-term mission teams. I know you've covered this on your previous podcast before, you know, this issue. So uh, what we, we heard from folks is uh, that, you know, we, we're being pressed to do better short-term missions um, but we really don't know what are some of the alternatives and why should we do it and how do we shift our focus. So our guidance is built on best practices in child protection, missiology, and cross-cultural engagement. Yeah. We Just like we did with our transitioning guide, we went to those who were actually doing short-term mission trips, churches, faith-based organizations, um, student-led groups. Uh, we asked them, you know, and they reviewed it and they said what would be helpful and what what made sense. Anyway, it encouraged the whole goal of this guidance was to encourage folks to shift their focus from engaging with children in residential care centers to engagement in activities that support family-based care. And when uh, when it's released, you'll see we have seven best practices in short-term missions to benefit orphans and vulnerable children. It highlights short-term mission models that are alternatives to that. And the good news is our friends, um, the Standards of Excellence in Short-Term Missions, They've endorsed the guidance, so we're excited to share it really soon. That's great. No, and I can I can say you know I could I could sense a, a, in in your in your voice you were you were worried about sounding like you're tooting your own horn too much, but I can <laughs> say tell you folks out there knowing Sarah that doesn't surprise me. But also, I will say uh, these these materials are phenomenal. I've used them. Thank I'm you. consulting with different uh, uh, organizations around the world and. Every one of them, when I'm when I'm talking with them, not only do I re- refer them to the Faith to Action materials, I'm using mm-hmm. them myself as I'm <laughs> the toolkits that you've created, and as you said, to make it accessible because that's one of the biggest issues that we have. We want to collaborate, you know. So many out there want to collaborate, but oftentimes it's like, how do we even begin to do it? And you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that that you have in this collaboration, you're collaborating with a lot of organizations that you'll never even know you're collaborating with because of the materials you've created that are so good, and they are very accessible. And so I, I recommend to you, you folks out there, if you're struggling through these issues, which I imagine you are, if you're working in this space, chances are you're struggling through these issues because they are so complex. They are so mm-hmm. hard. They are so difficult. Um, and as you said, I love that you recognize the, and this is something I've really appreciated about getting to know you over the years is that theory practice gap, right? You know, there is a theory practice gap sometimes and you, sometimes it's super, super large and sometimes it's just a little bit, but we need to recognize that, you know, and, and I think people do. And so many people will get caught up in that and say, you have no clue. You're not on the field. You don't know. You're just stuck up in some ivory tower. But the reality is you have been on the ground. You've seen it. You know, you, you may not have 
administered firsthand, but you have talked with a lot of people and you are a learner. You are a learner and you are wanting to understand better and deeper. So all of that goes into these materials. So folks out there, you know, these are materials that I, I fully endorse. Um, and because I've not only know Sarah and know the great work that she's done and know the background she has, but I've used them myself. Um, and I know others who have as well. So, so folks, Check them out. So, so how can we, uh, you know, I, I know how to, but why don't you tell our audience how we can access these material, access these materials, and we'll have these these links on the on the show notes as well. So, why don't you tell us, Sarah? That's great. Thanks, Bill. Uh, our website. You can go to our website, www.faith2action.org, and that's faithtoaction.org. And all of our resources, I said, I mean, they're, they're really grounded in best practices. And, and so you can feel confident in sharing them with um, the folks in your uh, network. And we cre- um, they're free. All of them are free. So you can either download them or you can uh, request a copy of any of them in print. So if you want printed materials, just email me. Uh, you can or us uh, at info at faith to action.org. And we check that email every day. Yep. I know sometimes people get nervous sending it to an info thinking it's just going to get lost somewhere. But we I promise you we'll see those requests and we'll mail them to you free of charge. We we want to get these into your hands. Um, and oh, by the way, the um, transitioning guidance manual and we will soon have that in Spanish and French as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really want to ask your listeners to help us. Because we, we, I, I, as we develop all of our resources, we always ask ourselves, what are we hearing that people need? What are the trends that, that folks are responding to? Um, what are some of the other demands where they're having, you know, they're looking for really good information. But we need feedback from your folks because, uh, first of all, let us know how you're using the materials, but where we can improve questions you have that we might be able to find answers to, just send them our way at that that, that same email address. Um, because we we spent a lot of time thinking about how can we provide these relevant and helpful resources for you who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. And and we improve our work with your feedback. And so uh, don't hesitate to uh, send your thoughts and comments and questions to us as well. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm so excited to hear they're in Spanish and French and, and, and you're, you're continuing to translate because that's one of the things you and I both know that we hear so often is that this is great stuff, but we need it in these other languages. And so that's something that I'm so thankful for. And, you know, they are free. So, you know, like, like this podcast, like, like so many um, other things I know that we talked to our mutual friend, Rebecca Knepp and connected in the materials they created. The fact that they're open to, to people and, and they are free. So take advantage of them folks and, and really use them because you might, you might come across things you agree with. You might come across things that are really difficult and that you're like, man, I don't know how we're going to do it, but, but really engage these materials well, um, because I think that they, uh, really will help you and will help us all to do this stuff better. So, uh, Sarah, let's, let's just shift gears just a little bit and, you know, go from those, the things that you are creating and helping others to understand issues and, and really just, I want, I want to know from you as you're doing this work, as you've been doing this work for decades, you know, what are, what do you see today are, are a couple of the most pressing issues that we're facing in the, in the care of orphan and vulnerable children and, and really how can we address them together? My heart gets heavy sometimes when I think about all of this that's out there, but then I get excited because I am seeing, uh, you know, so many people, God is calling so many people. Um, he has been calling us uh, from the beginning when uh, when we, if we know what James 127 says. So, uh, but unfortunately the issue of children living without parental care, or living without families, it's not going away. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we read all the time about these emerging refugee issues and the growing trafficking of children, conflict and natural disasters. And, and, and uh, the principles, like I said, of family care is so important, but it's calling for innovative solutions for these kids who are separated from their families. And, you know, I, I've touched on this a little earlier that over the last 20 years of policy work, I really, I'm so convicted that we cannot base our policy or practice primarily on our gut feelings, our assumptions, our good intentions, or even what seems logical alone. And as you you said earlier, we are called to excellence. And how we engage is going to make a world of difference. And I think about scriptures like Isaiah 117 that says, you know, that prompts us to learn to do what is right. Mm-hmm. We have to learn to do what is right. Mm-hmm. And Romans thirteen ten that warns us that love does no harm to a neighbor. And so I guess one of the most, you know, we, we, we've already been covering this quite a bit, that one of the most pressing needs we're facing is how can we decrease our reliance on residential care? And how can we then increase and promote family care in the context where we work and where we're investing our money and our time? And, and you know, I often say, yes, we're called to care for the orphan. But we're not called to keep them as orphans. Mm. And, you know, John 14, 18 says that God will not leave them as orphans. And, I, you know, I feel strongly that that orphanhood status is maintained until they are ultimately part of a family. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of, our, some of your listeners are aware, you know, the broader institutional child protection sectors calling for deinstitutionalization. And, you know, for our audience, we don't usually call it deinstitutionalization because we know that people are not supporting large institutional care centers. They're supporting smaller children's homes and group homes. But as I, uh, and, and they're wanting, they're seeking guidance on how to navigate that complex process, as you called it. Um, and some of them are transitioning because they have a vision. They have a vision to transform their ministries to ensure children are care for and families. Others are seeking guidance because the communities where they work in, national policies are requiring this transition. And, you know, all of these conversations, we, you know, we, whenever we enter into them, we always affirm that your calling to care for the orphan and vulnerable is grounded in scripture. And that is never going to change until God changes it, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, we assure them that, you know, we just we really encourage folks to say, you're not going to end your love and care for these children that God has entrusted to you. Um, you just get to be now be a part of providing for care in an even more effective way so they can thrive for a lifetime. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about the that residential care centers, it should be an intervention, not a destination. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be short term and, and there should be a concurrent plan in place to ensure they're either reunited with their family or that they regain a new family. And um, <clears throat> so, as I said, it's going to take the active involvement of everyone and we're going to need more collaboration. And that's between government, donors, uh, NGOs, faith-based organizations, families, caregivers, and really children and youth themselves. Um, The good news is we have numerous stories of transition that have taken place in Myanmar, Honduras, Kenya, Ukraine, Guatemala, Cambodia, and the list goes on. And, um, you know, I just recently spoke with a couple organizations uh, that are working in Haiti, and uh, it was Heartline Ministries and Children of the Promise. Mm -hmm. And both of them have transitioned their ministries. They used to, they, they started out providing residential care primarily, um, uh, that, and they were supporting children in residential care. But, um, you know, as Children, children of the Promise uh, shared with us, they, they're now, their ministry has grown to serving 600 families each year so they can care for their children, mm. so that the families can care for their children. And that took some time, and they were really uh, 
careful in how they implemented that change, but it's yielded such amazing um, fruit for the kids and the family, the kids that they'd served. And, um, and now, and now they're growing their ministries to see where can they be a part of ensuring foster care and adopt and domestic adoption options. And so all of that to say that, you know, the pressing issue is, yes, we still need to uh, move from uh, over-reliance on residential care, um, promoting family care, um, and the needs are still great for these kids. And, you know, I can't help but when I, when, when I see the refugee issues, I see children separated from their families, and I know what that means for them. It's dangerous mm-hmm. and it's scary. And how can we be a part of ensuring that they are back with their families? Um the second pressing issue I touched on earlier, too, is uh, rethinking short-term missions um, to children who are in residential care. It's, uh, you know, I know, again, you've covered this pod, the reasons why we need to be rethinking this. You've covered this on some previous podcasts. And, you know, two million Christians from North America travel on international short-term mission trips every year. And now more than before, many are visiting uh, orphanages and children's homes as part of that short-term mission. But, you know, we we know that there are specific risks risks involved with that. And we need to be aware of that and understand that, um, uh, how we can better engage and support family care through those short-term mission trips. Because, um, you know, and... I guess, um, so we want to encourage folks to shift their focus from engaging with children in residential care centers to engagement in activities that support family-based care. And, and you know, because we know if redirected, these trips can be used as a powerful tool to, bol- to bolster that family care for orphans and vulnerable children. It can help to increase funding and support for family and community-based care. It helps create advocates for orphans and vulnerable children. And it could really help increase the capacity of families and communities to care better for their kids. Absolutely. You could just tell in, in your voice and, and with so many of us, just the, the, the how tough these issues are, right? Mm-hmm. These, and that, you know, that, that goes to the answer to the question, which, what are the most pressing difficult issues? If they were easy issues, they wouldn't be the most pressing difficult issues, right? So, you know, something every yeah. time I talk to people about mission trips, you know, the question I... I say, we got to take the focus off. What are you going to do? Right. And really change the question to who are you going to be? You know, and if we go into relationships and we think about it as any other relationship we'd have in the world, you know, you're not going to come into some situation where you meet someone down the street and say, hey, you know, can I come over for dinner next week? And, you know, what am I going to do at your house? You know, no, it's, hey, yeah. if you're going to, if you feel led to meet somebody and go somewhere, then it's really getting to know people at deep levels. And, and with that will come an understanding on both sides of, is this a relationship we can pursue in person or is it something that you can do something overseas or what, what might that look like? But right. uh, I love how you said that, you know, there's lots of good that can come out of them, but we got to be very intentional, like with everything else. And, and I love that also this year focus and so much of what we talked about today on collaboration. Right. You know, when we talk about collaboration, it's not one person coming in and doing everything. No, it's us co-laboring, us working together. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like in each of these different situations? And there's so much to each of these issues. But uh, but yeah, I really appreciate how you answered them. And, you know, as I've said along and one of the things we've learned is that, you know, we want to enter in conversations. We want to be helpful to our brothers and sisters. We we really in Christ, we really want to be. Uh, develop positive relationships with them and share these things in a positive way. So 
as we navigate all of these conversations with sensitivity, you know, balancing the best interests of children at the same time. And, you know, I, I, yeah, lately, it seems lately, you know, as we we're heavily engaged in these conversations, uh, too often, we're still hearing folks say these kids can't, those families won't, Mm. those communities never will. And that goes back to reinforcing low expectations Mm. instead of recognizing community strengths. And sometimes we've been told, well, you're too idealistic. And those principles and strategies are divorced from reality. But you know, I whole heartedly disagree because I've met with leaders all over the world who are supporting and growing family care in their communities. And I've heard the testimonies from hundreds of children and families who have been served well. And so I believe that communities can be mobilized and strengthened in ways that lead to stronger safety nets for families and kids. And, and you know, the great, the good news is everyone can be a part of this movement. Yeah. So some of your listeners are involved in so many different ways, or maybe they're just starting to think about it. And the exciting thing is you can raise awareness within your own communities about the impact of poverty, what the needs are of these kids, the importance of family-based care. Um, you can contribute to family-based care and uh, family strengthening work already happening yeah. in the world. And it's credible, well-established organizations and groups that are doing this. You know, I think about our partners Bright Hope and Bethany Christian Services and La Providencia um, they're already supporting this family strengthening work. And mm-hmm. you can also partner with relief organizations that build community services to ensure families are strong. And, and that makes me think of our partners, World Vision, Catholic Relief Services, Hope and Homes for Children. Yeah. Um, and then, you know what? Sometimes you can just, what is what is in your community? Can you volunteer as a court-appointed special advocate for the kids in your community? Can you welcome a child into your home as a foster or adoptive parent? And so, you know, there's such a, a range, and then we can pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can pray. Mm-hmm. This needs more prayer than anyone can imagine. Right. Because the people who are doing the work, there are hazards. <laughs> For yeah. the kids who are separated, they need to be protected. Um, you know, uh uh, and for leaders to in, rise up within their communities, I'm seeing this happen in a big way in Central and South America. I'm sure you have, too. Yep. Just in the last few years, it's just, you can see what the Lord is doing to just raise up people in those countries to, who are really, you know, have the banner of family care for kids. It's such an exciting time to be a part of it. Absolutely. And, you know, as you're saying all these things, there's, again, so much more. The good news is, folks out there, those of you who listen to this podcast know this, but if you, this is the first episode you're stumbling upon or you're just kind of new to the podcast, some of the stuff that, you know, Sarah's referenced, we've talked about on the show. I love, you know, you talk about Heartline. Troy Livesay of Heartline shares all about what they're doing um, in an earlier episode. I believe it was in season two. Um, it's one of the most listened to episodes for good reason because of the work that the Heartline is doing and doing in Haiti is amazing. Delia Pop speaks to a lot of these open homes for children. She's working with them. Um, Amanda Cox recently talked about these issues. Rebecca Nepp has talked about them. Todd Guggenberger has talked about these issues and the, and the way that they're talking about them in, in, uh, just, it, it's, it's so helpful to me to, to think deeper. And I, and I hope the same for you guys out there. So continue to engage these issues. They're, they're, they're not going away. Like you, like Sarah said, and, um, they're things that we can, we can learn so much from each other. Um, if we're having conversations and we're challenging our thinking, as you said, to have higher expectations, to really not be okay with mediocrity, to have your, your, your standards set 
so high that only God can get us there, right? If we set our standards low, we'll hit them every time, but we won't have any progress. Uh-huh. We won't move forward and we won't move closer to excellence. If we stand, set them super high with God-sized vision, God-sized expectations, you know, we might not hit them all the time, but we will definitely move forward towards closer towards excellence. So, um, that's a great way for us to get back into our, uh, or get back to the last question we have. And, and that's, you know, something that I want to learn, you know, kind of from what you're learning from. We like to do this with all of our guests. Um, and it's something that I love adding to my uh, reading list with some great, great books and resources. So what have you, Sarah, been reading or what have you read, listened to, or watched recently that, uh, has impacted your understanding of how we can love orphan and at-risk children with better, uh, excellence? Well, I'm going to be relentless with uh, and give you an answer that I will say over and over again, no matter where I am or where I'm working at the time. But uh, really, out of all the books and resources I've read and podcasts and videos, nothing, nothing compares to listening to the children and the youth and the families who have shared their personal stories. And so, you know, through all of my work. Uh, I've heard children tell me about exploitation because they didn't have uh, the ongoing one-on-one care of a loving parent. I've heard the stories of those with broken hearts who left foster care and orphanages without a family. I've learned about struggling moms who made difficult but loving decisions to release their children to an orphanage to meet their basic needs. And, you know, I think about, you know, my friend Stephen Yusenbe, who had spent most of his childhood in a Kenyan orphanage. And you know, he says the pain of losing a loving parent is not as immense as the pain of living without one. And I think about my friend from college who had aged out of the foster care system at the age of 32. And when she, when she had her first little girl, she asked the couple she had known for years to adopt her so her daughter could have grandparents. Mm. You know, I saw you know, another little girl I know, she spent her first seven years in an orphanage and she told me she wanted to be a little girl when she grew up. And I didn't really understand that until I realized that during her childhood, she was in survival mode, protecting her younger sibling. She didn't even know what it was like to be a child. Mm. Um, but then I've also heard the stories of healing and renewed hope. Uh, you know, the stories from children who reunified with their maternal grandmother or adopted after so many years in foster care. Uh, stories of moms and dads who were supported financially so they could provide for the care of their children. And, you know, all of those stories, many of them have broken my heart. You know, of course, the resilience inspires me and their testimonies just keep reminding me to be vigilant and advocating for them to have a loving family. So I want to encourage your listeners, learn from young adults <laughs> who've experienced life in an orphanage, foster home or adoption. Listen to families if you can, if if you're in areas or especially if you're doing this work, listen to them um, who have been reunited with their children. Um, talk with caregivers, judges, community leaders, and others about the strength in their communities and, and what works in their unique context. And I guarantee you, every time you're going to hear the importance of family being reinforced over and over again. Yeah. And I know, I mean, there's so much. Clearly, I told you, we've, we have over 200 resources mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. recommend you read, but nothing will nothing will sit with you and influence you and inspire you. Um, in this work, like hearing from uh, people who actually have lived this, um, uh, people who who can tell you what worked for them, what didn't work for them, what they wish they had. Yeah, that is so good. That is so good, and what a what a great place to to end here. Um, 
Sarah, thank you so much for your time. What a, it was so encouraging to me as it usually is when I, when I am able to have some time with you. So thank you. And I hope, uh, I hope you out there uh, appreciate uh, the great work that, that Sarah's doing and just this wisdom she was able to share with us. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Phil. Well, now, folks, you out there know why I was so excited when Sarah finally agreed to do the podcast. We finally got her on. Um, I know I've learned a lot from Sarah. As you heard during that interview, she has asked me all kinds of questions, has given me all kinds of things to think about over the years. So, uh, Karen, what what, uh, did she give you to think about as as we were listening to that interview? Such great information. Sounds like such a um, just really wise and knowledgeable woman. I learned a lot from listening to her. I think that she provided a lot of excellent resources. It sounds like Faith to Action Initiative just has so many wonderful resources available to all different types of us who are interested in working with orphaned and vulnerable children, whether you're an individual or an organization or a ministry. And so I think those resources are incredibly valuable. No, absolutely. And I can, I can speak firsthand as I did in the interview. If, if you have not, uh, gone to faith to uh, and you're doing anything related to orphan and vulnerable children, uh, particularly internationally, but wherever you are, these resources, um, they're, they're so helpful. And a lot of them are actually hands-on. They help you to do the work to transition. You know, they have a toolkit for transitioning to family-based care. Um, that is very, very helpful. Um, but they also, you know, give you other resources, studies, um, to, to, you know, if you're looking for, as we talked about evidence-based best practices, um, they have the evidence there as well that they're using. So they have the source material, which is very helpful as well, because sometimes you're like, I don't know if I agree with this and you still may disagree with it after reading the evidence, but at least you know where it's coming from. And that's very helpful to me, I know, because I'm, I'm one who's often skeptical when it comes to people saying, oh, this is based on evidence. I'm like, well, what's the evidence, right? You know, as, as that's my lawyer, you know, talking, right? But I think it's important for us to do that because sometimes the evidence, you know, is flawed. And if the evidence is flawed and you're saying that it's evidence-based, best practice, well, then the best practices may be flawed too. So those are things that we definitely need to think about as we're doing this work. But I know that Sarah's has checked the, check the evidence, check the resources. And, you know, you still may disagree with some of the things she says, but, but at the end of the day, you know, she's definitely basing it in things that are proven, um, in the, in the research. So, you know, with that, with that, uh, Karen, you know, I know that there were some things that, uh, that when you heard it, you're like, I gotta listen to that. I gotta th- really think about those things. Um, can you share some of those with us? Yeah, I think even um, dovetailing on the evidence-based practice, it's it's a good reminder for those of us who are in the field as clinicians, as clinicians, as scholar practitioners, we do have evidence-based practices, whether it's a clinician or an organization, but a big piece of the evidence-based um, practice cycle is that we need to evaluate and we need to make sure that what is evidence-based is applicable to the culture and the population and the environment with which we're working. And so that was a good reminder for me. And I think just, you know, um, something to remind everyone out there, evidence 
evidence-based practice is absolutely legit. It's founded in theory, but um, as we're implementing it, we need to also be mindful to make sure that we are evaluating our own performance with the patient, with the population, with um, the model that we're implementing so that we can further the discussion and further the conversation and make tweaks where that is needed. No, absolutely. And I think the other thing that goes into that is the culture that we're working in and the context, yes. that a particular context, a particular child. Sometimes these evidence-based best practices don't apply to a particular situation, but we need to be really honest with ourselves. We talked about this on the show many, many times, that we need to be really honest with ourselves when we're, when we're looking at best practices, when we're looking at how we're doing things, that if we say, you know, to not just go, oh, well, it's not our culture. Well, that may apply sometimes, but that's an easy out sometimes to, to not apply the best practices. So you need to be really honest with ourselves to say, do these best practices apply to our situation? And in what way do they apply is probably a better question. And how can we use them to better? Because even if it's really, really hard to do, if it's really, really hard to do and it's the right thing to do, then we need to do it. Um, you know, as I've said, just because it's really hard doesn't mean we don't do it. And that's something that we need to really consider. But there's one other thing that we were talking about before. You know, she talked about Cambodia. And I know that, you know, that in the orphan or the the adoptions and and the difficult issues that are that are at play there. And that was something that I know made you kind of think about and listen to twice or so. Um, You know, why, why was that? Yeah, I think that I absolutely understand where Sarah was coming from. And I think it's it's good to remember that each situation is unique and is different. One of the things that she highlighted over and over again, which I'm completely in agreement with, is that children grow best in families. I like the way that she says that. And a lot of other people use that phrase. Children do grow best in families. And one of the things that she had mentioned um, she was referencing, I think, something to the lines of, um, you know, struggling mothers who make the most decision, who make the most difficult decision ever to give up their child. And it's just always for me, from a clinical perspective, working with so many children um, who've joined families through foster care and adoption, and quoting my um, mentor and most, I don't know hailed colleague that I look up to, Dr. Karen Purvis. Um, we never want to add to a child's story, but we also never want to take away from it. And so as, as true as that statement is for some moms that it probably has been the most difficult decision, we don't know that to be true for all children. And so just keeping that in mind when we're parenting children or working with children who come from histories of foster care or adoption, um, that we never want to add to their story, but we also don't want to take it away. And I know that's what Sarah meant, but I thought it would be good to just kind of clarify that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I agree with all that. And, you know, as with, as with everything we do in this show, there's a million more things we could be talking about. And, and that's what we, I, I hope that you keep doing out there is keep talking about these issues. And, and more importantly, that I keep acting on what we're talking about and on the things we're learning to keep doing things with the best practices we can with the best, um, you know, the best, not just best intentions. Cause as we say, good intentions, the best intentions are not enough. We need to really be thinking about these issues deeply. And so, you know, I think taking what Sarah learned saying, you know, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there, Karen, as well about, you know, just being thinking about the other side of some of these things. And I know talking with Sarah over the years, she absolutely agrees with that. Um, but, uh, you know, now is the time to transition into our recommendations. And today, Karen, you have something for us. What you got? 
Yes, I am going to continue our theme with the scholar practitioner model. This recommendation is probably more geared towards clinicians and psychologists and professionals providing care for children from a very specific and trained professional standpoint. And so the book that I have for you guys today, um, it's edited by Kathy Malchiotti and it's called Creative Interventions with Traumatized Children. It's one of my favorite books. It does a really great job of giving some really unique and specific strategies and some interventions. Um, and it's a, a pretty wide range of strategies and creative interventions for working with kiddos who have histories of harm. And so I highly recommend this book. Again, it is a clinical recommendation. It should not be used with some, um, someone it should not be used for people who do not have the training and the expertise to be working with traumatized children. So clinical intervention recommendation for clinicians and um, trained individuals working with children. It's called Creative Interventions with Traumatized Children. Well, thanks for that, Karen. Um, for those of you out there who follow, the recommendations from Karen typically are a bit more uh, technical than mine. Not always. No. She also did a picture book a few weeks ago. So I'm just saying right now, last week I did one on a banana and how to open a banana. If you're keeping track, you're keeping score. Today it was just for clinicians. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm simpler than Karen, um, but some of you may have uh, concluded that. Not necessarily true. But uh, no, I, I'm so thankful for these because this is huge. It's important to understand, like in all seriousness, there are certain things that we need to um, be doing at that deeper level. And so to the extent you hear that recommendation, you're like, I'm not a clinician, and you check out. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know clinicians, yeah. you know people working with the children, you know people that are doing this stuff um, around the world. So if they don't know about that, if they're not aware of that, you know, throw it out to them and say, hey, you know, do you know about this book? Because I just heard about it. And, you know, they may and they may not. And if they don't, then this will be a great thing for them. So with that, that's a good example of how we hope that you're taking what, what you're hearing today. You're taking what you're hearing on this podcast and what you're, what you're learning, hopefully, from the Faith Action materials and other materials like them. I, pr I pray that you use all these things that you're learning and use all these things that you're reading and listening to. You'll, help, you'll use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.